Have you ever spent all night playing video games or binge watching a telly series and you hear the birds chirping and you go, oh God, it's late and close whatever you're doing. And it takes you a second to look at your hands and go, okay, right. First person, right, 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 right. That's just a very common example of how powerful our brains are, how powerful our minds are. This immersion we feel in things we are engaged with. This is a great starting point for our topic for the day. The idea of self. What are we? What is this experience that we're having of being alive? Hello and welcome to the subjective space. To give context to this discussion... I'd like to start with my problems with empiricism and the idea of objectivity. We are viewing things from a subjective place. If you don't believe me, take a second and just look around you. Who is viewing that? It's you. We're going to view things from a subjective place because we are subjective creatures. That's how perspective works. That's how point of view works. It's going to be first person point of view all the way through. So it seems to me strange whenever people suggest the idea of there being an objective observation. Well, you're adding objectivity to subjective input. It's going to be subjective. And you might say, well, what about science? What about scientists? Don't they observe things objectively? No. (laughs) That's why peer review exists, and we will get into this eventually. But what scientists are measuring is consistency. They're measuring consistent observations from a subjective viewpoint. Take, for example, if you're saying, if I apply this chemical to fire, it will change colors. Yes, my last experience with chemistry is rewatching Breaking Bad. But sure, regardless of what happens in front of you, it's just you seeing it. If there's not someone else there to go, yes, the flame has changed colors, then you don't really have anything other than, I saw the flame change colors. There's always that I statement in these observations. And then they're passed off to another person who goes, well, I also saw the flame because what we're measuring is consistency. It's not the observation. The observation is one point of datum. That's your vocab for the day. Unless I throw out something else. Datum, a singular point of data. In other words, it's not even a coincidence. It's just an occurrence. Here's a helpful way to think about it. Once is an occurrence. Twice is a coincidence. Three times is a pattern. And that pattern is solely subjective until it is confirmed by another party. Now, this other party's confirmation would be peer review. 
And as we'll get into in the next episode, intersubjectivity. And that brings us to the topic of epistemic dependence. And I'm having to clean up my language as I go along, so let's just call that big brain energy. So if you're not in the know, epistemology is the study of how we know things, like what is knowledge. When I was in secondary, we called it theory of knowledge. It was just a more palatable term for epistemology. So when I bring up epistemic dependence, that is the idea that we need other people to know things. And this is in contrast to epistemic individualism, which would go along the lines of John Locke and what we were talking about before with empiricism, objectivity, the idea that you should go out and do your own research and, oh, you can know things if you just supply yourself. I don't know what that accent is, but whoever has it, I hope you feel insulted. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But with epistemic dependence, what it really means is that we can't know everything. Like, knowledge is not sectioned off. There's no velvet cordon that you get to in your brain. It's just that as humans, we find it very comforting and useful to specify to label things. And beyond that, when we're when you get to more specific areas of knowledge, when you get to more advanced degrees, you're going to specialize. So by having these categories and labels, we're able to say, "Oh, well, I'm a not just a scientist of natural philosophy." Where you don't just say you're a scientist you say you're a scientist of not just physics, but applied physics, theoretical physics, quantum physics. But these are just imaginary ley lines we've put out for ourselves. So as we're exploring the landscape of knowledge, we know our path. We know which direction we're going down. We can keep getting more specific, and I'm doing a gesture and simultaneously realizing I am a fool and this is a podcast. But we get more specific so we can explore these specific topics deeper. Where you start with, okay, there are natural elements. And then you get more specific. Well, I'm going to look at how they interact in this way. Well, I'm going to look solely at how they interact within these conditions. I'm very obviously not a STEM major. I'm <laughs> doing my best for examples. But an easier way to talk about epistemic dependence is look at a scientific paper, like on climate change, for example. There are some papers that have a thousand, literally a thousand authors, because not everyone can specialize in everything. People know different things. So this idea of epistemic individualism, it's a bit ludicrous, don't you think? Because you can't know everything. At a certain point, you have to have trust that someone else has done the research, has read the studies, has put in the effort to be able to tell you that, yes, 
drinking Coca-Cola is not great for you. I'm saying that as someone who does enjoy a cola now and again, but it's not the healthy option. And we have people who have looked at the the data, that is the plural of datum, and thereby come to that conclusion with extremely founded reasoning. So for anything where we're coming to a logical judgment, a founded conclusion, we are epistemically dependent on others to provide us with the data to make those decisions. But this epistemic dependence extends beyond just these scientific reasonings. And we'll get into intersubjectivity, but I do want to make the point that if I were to say there is a glass in front of me, which my first impulse was to say a microphone in front of me, but of course, if you're listening to this, you can confirm because you're listening to my voice. Ergo, there is an agreement between the two of us that there's a microphone in front of me because you can hear me. But if I were to say there's a glass in front of me, until I do this, can you hear that? There it is. There's that peer review. Otherwise, the only thing I have is the knowledge that I am perceiving this glass. Its existence is up in the air until someone else is able to confirm that they also see that glass. And existence is even a strong word to use. We can say that it exists within a communal reality, just as right now it might exist within a subjective reality, that being my own. I'm sorry to say this, but the idea of communal realities will be left off for the next episode. So then let's focus in on the main topic, the self, you. What is the self? What are you? Let's start with a thought experiment. What are you? What do you consider to be you? Easily, you might consider your body. So let's start there. If you take off your extremities, your hands, your feet, if you lost those, would you still be you? I imagine the answer is yes. Now, if you took off your limbs, would you still be you? Perhaps, I mean, obviously, there would be changes to your existence. There might be changes to how you perceive yourself. The ways you are interacting with the world would definitely change. But would you fundamentally not be you if you lost your limbs? And I think this is an easy transition, your torso, because there's no real difference to interacting with the world between losing your limbs and losing your torso. So I, I feel like we don't have to pause too greatly on that point, that if your head on its own were able to exist and perform the same tasks you are now, it wouldn't be much different. You wouldn't disagree with the idea that you're still you. And this is where we get into complicated things, because now we're up to the brain. Now, the frontal lobe is where thought takes place, so we'll leave that for later on. But memories, 
the hypothalamus. Can we take that away? If you were to wake up tomorrow with no memories, would you still be you? I would say yes. Now, I'm playing off of possibly a different definition of self than you are, but I would say that memory, while definitely a necessary ingredient to how you behave, it's not you. Now, let's try for that frontal lobe. The way you think, is that you? I would say no, because that's thought. (laughs) It's just neurons firing. If someone asked you who you are, what you're like, would you define yourself by the way your meat interacts with itself? Probably not. So let's go further. Let's let's ignore the brain. Let's say the brain is totally a non-factor. Let's go into the Cartesian, into the Leibnizian idea of the soul, this immaterial aspect of thinking that might be considered you. And let me levy to you a radical concept that you are not your thoughts. It's very common to the point of it just being human to have a thought and think, what in the world was that? To be surprised at the way you think. So let me ask again, if we've gotten rid of thinking, of thoughts, if we've gotten rid of the rest of the brain, the hypothalamus, the Broca's area, the Wernicke's area, those are both just ways of you articulating yourself. If we get rid of the brain, then we can very easily get rid of the head, the torso, the limbs, the extremities. What's left? Awareness. You are aware that you are having thoughts. You are aware that you are having the sensations of breathing in, breathing out. You're aware of your limbs, your torso, your hunger, all these sensations. Are they you? No. But you are aware of them intrinsically to the point that you are immersed. You identify with these feelings. But that's all they are. They are feelings. Now, I'm not content to say that we're just observers, but this idea of determinism we will get to later in this episode for once. But for now, let's leave this idea to the side and focus on this idea of the subjective that we have established. So to reiterate, the thing we're going to focus on now is the distinction between this viewing self, this pure place of subjectivity, versus the behavioral self. So that would be the difference between the common conception of self and this awareness-based conception of self that we are talking about. And the benefit of this separation is the ability to consider our behavioral patterns rather than just assuming that our behavior is inherently reflective of who we are. Because our behavior is not consistent. Who you are when you're at school is different from who you are at work. 
is different from who you are around your parents, is different from who you are around your friends. We play characters in our life. I mean, they're all based off of the same background of experience, neurology, and you could include opinions and things like that, but really it can be boiled down to those two qualities. How your brain works and the things that you are pulling from. And regarding the impact social setting has on our behavior, there's this concept in psychology called front stage, backstage, where the amount of observation you have affects the way you act. Now, it's easy to say that the person you are when you're lying awake at night is the purest sense of you. There's no performance there. Because even when you're with your closest friends, well, there's still some aspect of a filter. There's some aspect of performance. When you're in front of strangers, it, that performance grows greater. And when you're observed by a camera, you can see it in reality shows. They don't reflect reality because, like the Heisenberg Principle, observation impacts the data. But let's think again about that quiet moment right before you go to bed. Maybe you're sitting on the toilet, having a little pee, and you feel like that is your most honest moment. Maybe it is, but it's still a character. You're still approaching this experience of being alive from the perspective within the context of this character this sense of self established through behavioral patterns experiences neurology opinions thoughts all all of this garbage <laughs> garbage isn't the best word <laughs> but all all of these things we identify with those aspects of immersion you're still experiencing existence in the context of those immersive qualities. Now, this doesn't have to result in a rejection of self, but simply an acknowledgement that we are playing a role. This idea of roles brings us back to the determinism question. Do we have free will? Are we playing these roles, or are we simply observing? I would argue that this is fundamentally an ontological question. Remember ontology, the thing in itself, what is there, as Quine put it. Now, we'll get into that in future episodes. Good God, I can't wait till season two when I can stop saying that. But for the moment, let's discuss the idea of amor fati, love of fate. Because so I think the best approach is to act as though we have free will, to operate under that assumption. As if we are living in a deterministic universe, that being... A universe where everything that happens can be predicted through the proper evaluation of starting conditions. Where we start off with a big bang, 
and then at a certain point, some fishy boy crawls onto land, and however society builds up results in you. And it results in you in a way that you live your life. You experience your life exactly in the way you do. Whether or not that is the case, love of fate, accepting it, but also operating under the assumption that you are able to change. Because despite all of the factors which determine our characteristics, our behavior, we all, or as far as I know, we all, have this feeling that there is a possibility for change. There is a possibility for agency. So if we are wrong and we are living in a deterministic universe, there's really no harm in acting as though the situation is otherwise. Because if you're determined to go through these actions, what will be, will be. Now, I cannot bring up the Nietzschean idea of Amor Fati without also including in his idea of perceiving what happens not as this has happened, but I have willed this to happen. This imposition of agency into occurrences. And this takes this idea of Amor Fati, love of fate, from being a resignation to a declaration. I am here because I want to be. I exist because I want to be. These things happen to me because I want them to. It is a powerful formulation for the same reason why we accept the sound logic of determinism but eschew it for the active use of the idea of free will. Because if our ideas of the nature of time being a flat circle, the idea of our universe being deterministic, if those are wrong, then assuming they are wrong, we have everything to gain. Assuming they are correct, we have everything to lose. It's not a matter of philosophy so much as risk management. But I think we can expound on the idea of control insofar as how much control we have over who we are. We tend to vastly overestimate the control we have over who we are. And that causes a lot of problems. Because whenever we shift the blame to individual responsibility, we take said blame away to the systemic causes of the problems we are trying to address through individual responsibility. But we don't choose where we're born, what culture we're born into, who raises us, the neurology of our brains, the way we process information, the formative experiences which shape our later reflections, or the exposure we have to ideas which could play a part in said reflections. To give you a prelude on my opinions on determinism, I think that while there are these multiple factors influencing and to a certain extent determining who we are, 
the limits of our experience without an external force acting upon them, I do think that there is a possibility for change if we f reflect on ourselves and open ourselves up for new information and perspectives, approach things from a logical point of view, and more importantly, compassionate point of view. We can change. But I do not blame anyone who is unable or unwilling to do so, because the starting place that they come from, they have no say in that. The best we can do is stand against hate and injustice and harm to our fellow humans and try and lead those who are lost back to the light. So what can we do with this? What are the practical implications of these ideas? I would hope you wouldn't use them as a denial of responsibility. Personally, I would think that an understanding of the nature of subjective reality would increase your feeling of obligation to your fellow man because it represents an acknowledgement of the verisimilitude between your experiences and those of another. We have all felt hunger, whether in a lesser extent or a greater extent, and I would hope that that's not something any of us would wish onto another person. However, I do think we can use this conceptual framework to relax, to let ourselves off, to take a break, because imagine yourself as an actor. It would be unreasonable for you to be so invested in a role that it damages you in your regular life. In the same way, it's completely unnecessary to ask of ourselves that these experiences that we have as subjective entities should be harmful. It's not to say that we should never feel sad or angry or any sort of negative emotion but rather that we should look for the beauty in those moments, look for the understanding of those moments, rather than beat ourselves up over not being this way or that way. To return to that idea of playing a character, we should experience all the poignant aspects of life available to us, but have a through line of enjoying playing the character, finding joy in any moment, finding beauty in any moment, and above all else, respecting the values and the process that we can find through self-examination over this incessant striving for perfection. So in a way, showing compassion for others is showing compassion for yourself by recognizing in yourself the same imperfection you may be tempted to judge others for. Charity really does begin in the home, and love begins with the self. It is so much easier to love others unconditionally if you love yourself unconditionally. And that doesn't mean tolerating hate or harm. You can still stand up against injustice while practicing love, but it means not demonizing those you find yourself at odds with. 
If we can learn to love ourselves and all our glorious imperfection, then we can extend that to love others and all of their glorious imperfection. Well, if you have any questions, feel free to submit it to the Curious Cat link in the description. I'm also sure, actually I'm not sure, but there might <laughs> there might be an option for comments below the podcast. If I can see them, I will address them. And if you're listening to this in the future, if there are other episodes in front of this, don't be afraid to ask a question in reference to this one. And if you are asking a question through Curious Cat, I would appreciate it if you would add in the episode number or title. And if you're responding to a particular point, a timestamp would make my life very much easier. So thank you for listening. This has been The Subjective Space.